0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with two amazing political leaders and organizers, Shaniqua McClendon, who is the senior political director at Crooked Media, and Gabby Goldstein, who's the co-founder of Sister District. Both Gabby and Shaniqua have recently joined forces for a new series called the State Power Series. And that's a series of events which feature conversations with political and legal experts, historians, elected officials, and activists. And in that series, I talk about the power that's available when we win elections at the state level. But this conversation was especially powerful for me because I don't think I've had a more nuanced conversation about voter engagement. Lastly, we make a lot of references to op-eds, events, and websites in this episode, and I've included links to all of those in today's show notes. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Gabby Goldstein and Shaniqua McClendon. Shaniqua, Gabby, welcome. Thank you for having us. So you two joined forces recently to lead a series of events called the state power series, right? And I think there are three upcoming virtual events. Um, Can you tell me more about the series, what its purpose is, who your audience is?
1: Sure. Thank you so much, Jen, for, for having us. So the premise of this series, the state power series is that it's time for all of us as progressives to learn more about the power of states and I think that the public is really coming awake to this notion that states are extremely important. And, and there's there's general interest in learning more about how progressives can harness the power of states and challenge our thinking about states and get excited about building progressive power at this level of government. And so we're having a series of conversations between Sister District and Uh, And Vote Save America and Crooked Media, I'm so glad to have Shaniqua here, my fellow co-moderator of the series. Um, We're convening these discussions to talk about the ways that states are so important, Um, from everything from abortion rights to climate change, right, gun safety legislation, you name it. The most critical and frankly life altering policies are increasingly coming not from our stagnant, stalemated federal government, but from often overlooked state levels of power, especially state legislatures.
2: Yeah, and I would just add anyone who, like, ever will talk to me, I always go back to 2010. Um, 2010 was just such um, a consequential election. Republicans literally swept state houses, and that's literally what we're feeling the effects of still. And for whatever reason, Democrats get really focused on federal elections. And Republicans being able to sweep in, take a bunch of state legislatures has allowed them to, you know, specifically in 2010, a census year, not only, you know, go crazy, but they've been able to suppress the vote and and redraw districts in a way that even when there are enough progressives and Democrats voting for Democrats, it's not having the outcomes we want to see. In a state like North Carolina, which is where I'm from, the state is about evenly split and Republicans still have an outsized influence in the state. 2010 is also... really central year to my career in politics. It's when I started working in politics. But I also, I, I basically started in August of 2010. November 2010 happened. And then over the next couple years, through redistricting, I saw our state delegation go from seven Democrats and six Republicans to 10 Republicans and three Democrats in a state that, you know, by my estimate, not a lot, but has, you know, it's not changed a lot. It's not like it's moved to the right. I definitely say it's moved to the left, even if only a little since then. And so, You know, state legislatures have always been important and will continue to be important. And I hope I wish we would have learned in 2010 that they were important. But now, as Gabby said, states are having their moment. So we really want to lean into uh, people's attention and just capture it right now so that they don't lose interest again.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up 2010, because I feel like, you know, just for the audience, and I've talked about this ad nauseum about state power and state legislatures. In 2010, conservatives, they caught on to the idea of the the power in state legislatures, right? And it began with this op-ed by Karl Rove, and it ended with this whole project, this, this coordinated project, to take over state legislatures. It was called formally Project Red Map and some other things followed that. And they basically figured out in 2010, It was, I think it was probably directly as a response of Obama winning the election in 2008, but regardless, they figured out the power in states long before Democrats woke up to what happened, right? And like I said, I feel like I've been talking about this for decades, it's so important, but I'm not sure, you know, you and I have been talking about it, the three of us have been talking about it, everyone that I interview about this understand it fully, but I'm not sure that the distinction is clear among voters you know people who aren't super plugged into politics you know like like joe the plumber does does everyone remember joe the plumber yes of course you know so what are the specific elections that fall under this umbrella you know what do we want people to pay attention to versus what they typically pay attention to like these sexy elections like the presidential election what should they actually pay attention to
1: Yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing up Project Red Map. For folks who haven't read it, I couldn't recommend Dave Daly's book more highly. It's called Rat Fucked and it goes into real detail about what happened in the 2010 redistricting cycle and the ways in which the Repu- you know, Republicans and their conservative allies were able to um, basically gerrymander their way into power. And we're seeing the reverberations of that still in this new round of redistricting as well. Um, you know, I love to talk about Wisconsin. I love Wisconsin. Amazing place, full of amazing Democrats, right? Lots of Dems there. But, you know, what has happened in their legislature and the gerrymander that Republicans have done, in 2018, just as an example, um, Democrats running for the state assembly received 54% of the votes, right? More than half of the votes, right? 54%. They only won 36% of the seats in the legislature. So that shows you the remarkable reach of gerrymandering and how gerrymandering can pack Democrats into a tiny amount of districts so that you statewide can, you know, these these candidates can get 54% of the votes, but only 36% of the seats. So that has reverberations for everything that we care about. I mean, so going back to your question, Jen, of, you know, what should people be paying attention to? Literally everything that progressives care about happens at the state level and is increasingly happening at the state level instead of at the federal level. And, you know, we, we talked about a few things at the top, right? Abortion with the Supreme Court now having a, you know, a, a conservative supermajority, um, being able to fulfill their 100-year vision of of narrowing federal civil rights protections and enlarging state power, really seeing that. You know, the Dobbs decision is one example, right, reverting power over legal access to abortion back to states. But I think another um, Supreme Court case that happened that came down this term that folks um, may be less familiar with is the EPA case, Uh, West Virginia versus EPA. And the Supreme Court there essentially said that the EPA, the federal agency, does not have the authority to really tackle climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. And really, it has to, you know, this is going to fall to the states. Um, So, you know, from climate change itself is now, um, you know, really back on the state. Plate, as opposed to uh, a set of issues that the federal government can tackle. So, you know, that's these are just some examples of um, of places where state power is really what will drive the policies and the outcomes that we all care about as progressives. I think that one of the reasons why, and this is something we explore in the series, um, one of the reasons why progressives and Democrats have, as Shaniqua mentioned, you know, had this overemphasis on federal Solutions, federal litigation, federal elections, this way, way over, you know, overemphasis on the federal level is because progressives don't have a real deep emotional connection to the idea of state power. You know, and for for a lot of good reasons historically, right? We think of state power as connected to Jim Crow and um, the recalcitrance of the Confederate states at you know during Reconstruction and all of this sort of terrible uses of state power. Um, but Heather Gerken, who's one of my favorite federalism scholars, she's the dean of the Yale Law School, she she has um, often said that federalism as a concept is politically neutral, right? Like it doesn't have a partisan valence. It's just that one political party has used federalism as a political tool, and that's the Republican Party. So I think that we collectively need to have these conversations as progressives, as Democrats, to start building a positive narrative about state power and to, to sort of backfill this hole in our imagination that we collectively have around state power and celebrate what, the you know, what great states are doing and, and great policies and outcomes that we see and particularly our blue states, so that we can diversify our energy, our money, our time, away from just focusing on federal solutions and including states and, and state power in um, in our vision of like why things are better when Democrats are in office.
2: Yeah, and I, I'd say, you know, I know it's easier for people to kind of digest the federal races. There's fewer of them, um, state legislature races, and just State level races in general, there are a ton of them, and they don't only happen in even years. You know, there's elections down the ballot um, in odd years. But I think, in addition to people understanding the power of these um, elected offices, is also understanding the power they have to affect who's in these elected offices. It is feasible to get enough volunteers to, you know, hit almost every door in a district and um, at the state level for like a, a state house district in certain states. And you can talk to more voters, you can have deeper conversations, you can talk about the specific issues that are directing, Im- impacting them a bit more directly than some of the really broad issues that are going through our federal government. And quite frankly, if people paid as much attention and put as much energy, both you know, from volunteering to Contributions, they could have an outsized impact on these uh, races that are further down the ballot. Um, I uh, I never published this actually, but I, I wrote something a while back about why people should invest more in legislative state legislature races. And in doing research around that, the cost it takes to um, you know. Money won't explicitly determine who's going to win the election, but the money it takes to run a legislative race, a state legislative race, is so much less than a House district, definitely a Senate race, and definitely, you know, getting someone into the White House. And so as individuals, we have a lot more power to impact outcomes at the state level than we do at the national level. That's not to say we shouldn't care about national but as we as we've seen with Republicans, when you really invest at the state level, there's there's a documentary called Slay, "Slaying the Dragon" or "Slay the Dragon." It's about gerrymandering. But uh, the creator of Project Red Map is actually in the documentary, and he talks about how cheap it was to literally flip all these legislatures. And this, you know, that investment has you know had a return on investment ten times over because not only did they get those legislatures, now we see in the U.S. House, the impact of gerrymandering that's come through these state legislatures. And we've seen in the Senate the impact of voter suppression at the state level and how it's dictated who's been able to be elected to the Senate. So I think people also understanding that they have outsized power further down the ballot that can reverberate up instead of thinking it has to go the other way around.
0: Right. And, you know, just saying all of that, I'm glad you mentioned money and I'll get to that in a second, Shaniko, but you have to acknowledge the fact that like it was really smart, right? It was just, you know, it was evil, but it was, it was pretty smart because you're right. The return on investment has been vast. I think, I think there was an interview, maybe it was Karl Rove or someone else saying that like, they had no idea that they would gain so much from this little project. Back to money. You know, these are the federal level races are very sexy races, right? You can't deny that everyone, you know, during the presidential primary of 2020, you know, they got behind their favorite candidate. You know, people love the kind of horse race politics that you see at the federal level you know and i I'm not really sure how and you know Gabby you touched on this you know how you get someone emotionally invested in like a state attorney general race you know or something like that and you know secondly I'm not really sure that Republicans did that I don't think that they got their constituents invested on an emotional level but what they did do was they just threw a ton of money at these down ballot races and at these state level races and you now speaking of the money they didn't throw a ton of money in all of the races they had a ton of money and they placed them and invested them strategically i think that's what happened and i don't know if we have an apparatus in place to to mirror that or to repeat that
1: yeah i mean i think that's interesting i would say a few things um first of all on the money piece i love looking at fec filings they just came out for the second quarter a couple of days ago and um and so i took a peek cuz i had looked after q1 and i looked at after q2 And Democrats running in non-competitive federal Senate races, right? Non-competitive. These are not, these are races that are non-competitive, according to Cook Political Report, right? Like these, these are not uh, purple, purple races. These are uh, non-competitive, have raised $130 million so far, just by the end of Q2 this year, for their races this year. $130 million for non-competitive federal Senate races, now, like the Arizona State Legislative uh, Caucus, right, the, the entity that helps run the state legislative campaigns in Arizona, their entire budget for 2020 was $5 million, right? The DLCC's annual budget in 2020 was $50 million. And already this year, just by the end of June, Democrats running a non-competitive Senate races raised $130 million for their campaign. So there's a tremendous overinvestment in um, non-strategic races on our side, you know, that I think we, we desperately need to to recalibrate how we give and who we give to. It certainly feels good to, you know, give give money, it uh, you know, to someone running against Mitch McConnell or whatever. But in these non-competitive federal races, you know, we're just draining resources that um, that we could be putting towards strategic winnable state-led races somewhere else. Another thing I want to say about um, the Republicans is I actually disagree that, um, well, I don't think that money does it all, right? Like, I don't, you know, we, we can't just uh, buy TV ads and win your race. A lot comes down to running real field programs. And I think Virginia is a good example of where Democrats last year did not run uh, great field programs collectively, um, here at Sister District, we did seventy per- over seventy percent of our ca- our candidates' uh, phone calls, phone banking calls last year in Virginia. I mean, that's a very high number, right? Um, there was not a tremendous groundswell of energy and volunteer enthusiasm um, in Virginia, um, and we lost the House by tiny field margins, right? Seven hundred and fifty votes out of three million, over three million votes cast. Those are tiny field margins. So I think that Republicans have a number of organizing entities and organizing efforts that are very effective. And I think that that is coupled with a deep, you know, ideological congruence to the idea of state power. And, um, and so, you know, that's something that we're, we're working to build, but I don't, I don't think that money is just, you know, money is not going to solve our problems. And, you know, certainly in Virginia last year is a good example, again, where Democrats were out where we outspent, and outraised Republican opponents in a number of races by you know pretty large margins and loss you also have to talk to voters and 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 build those relationships and um so it takes all the things to 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 win the races at the end of the day
0: you know i I think you're absolutely right. I think it isn't only money and you you can find like lots of examples to show that sometimes when a politician outraises another politician you know often they they win so it isn't that. Only that, rather. You know, and I think that the Dobbs decision, right, the the decision that came down, how how long has it been, like a month or a couple of months, you know, which subsequently overturned Roe v. Wade? I think that kind of supercharged this idea that we need to recognize what can be accomplished on the state level. Because, you know, we saw a lot of blue states respond to that pretty swiftly. You know, they tried to increase access to abortion and reproductive health care on the state level. But I think one of the things I really want to drive home, because we... We see lots of examples of what blue states can do in response to this, to things like this. But I want to drive home, if you can give me a couple of examples of the ways in which conservatives have used their state power to diminish democracy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you have the obvious examples of voter suppression bills that are able to go through the states and then they're put into place and and people can't vote. um, With the Dobbs decision, seeing how immediately states who had trigger laws you know, immediately went back to a world before Roe. And in other states where they just have some of the craziest people elected immediately started working on bills to, um, uh, you know, to to restrict access even greater or uh, point blank in those states. And actually thinking back to the Shelby v. Holder decision, it's kind of what we saw there too. The minute a federal protection is moved, the states who want to take rights away from people, they immediately start doing it. But um, specifically within that is leveraging the courts. I think that's something that a lot of people kind of, I don't want to say don't pay attention to, but don't understand that that is also a political tool that conservatives have exploited and exploited successfully. You have to, a lot of these laws come out of state legislatures. These state legislatures know um, that they'll, well, they should be struck down, but once you get enough get enough judges uh, in place, it will either you know, be upheld at a lower court, but ultimately it will make it to most of these will make it to the Supreme court when there are these big, kind of big, not just laws, but kind of like social norms, but that are uh, put into law through precedent. They know that they have, if they can get it up to the Supreme court and the Supreme court strikes it down, then that just creates, I don't want to say insurmountable, but a very uphill battle for people who oppose the things that they've done. And so again, looking back at how we got here, it's, literally through the state legislatures. You had 2010, you had a lot of these folks get elected. Then they gerrymandered the maps and made it hard for the votes of people who want to see progress to count as much as those who don't. Then that started to impact who was in our federal government, in the, in the House and in, in the Senate, and quite frankly, also in the White House. And then that's the mechanism by which we start nominating these judges. You know, the White House puts the the names forth and then they go through the Senate. And so, yeah. They have literally through state legislatures been able to impact every level of government. These are how they take away our rights. You know, at first it just seems like a messaging bill that was just put out there to, you know, get people riled up. But as we've seen, we were told so many times there's no way Roe would be overturned. It's precedent. You know, it's on the books, no one's gonna touch it. You all are being crazy and hysterical and you should calm down. But eventually the voter suppression and everything else they've done to to restrict our rights and quite frankly, tear down our democracy has allowed them to navigate a very unfair playing field and and get us to where we are now.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Shelby v. Holder, because you're, you're reading my mind. That's exactly what I was thinking when we talked about how, you know, things work their way up from the state level all the way up to the Supreme Court. And for people who are listening who aren't familiar with Shelby v. Holder, that was a Supreme Court case, I think it was in 2013, yeah. that effectively gutted the Voting Rights Act, right? And that is something that worked its way up from the states. And like, now look at us, you know, voter suppression is just just rampant. So it's really important to understand how that works. And, you know, once something makes its way up to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court with this supermajority that conservatives have, you're right. It's it's really hard to turn back the clock and, you know, turn things around. I hope we have a really good outcome for the midterms, but countering what they've already done with their state legislative power, I I really worry how long we're going to have to live with this kind of really reduced level of democracy, especially around reproductive reproductive justice.
1: I completely agree with everything you both are saying. I think that the, you know, Trump, Trump appointed between one-third and one-fourth, depending on how you count it, of all the federal judges in this country just in those four years. And and there were already a ton of conservative judges even before he, he got into to office. And it is a very, very long-term goal of conservative jurisprudence to narrow federal civil rights protections and, and return power to states. And so, you know that that is the, now we are seeing the culmination of a very long project in jurisprudence, and so you know it, it it has this effect of I think, which is coupled with other factors of really enlarging state power and and really um creating the situation where states are growing in power, um and and yes there are these you know uh, tons of regressive policies that. Republican controlled legislatures have passed. I think it's also really, really important um, for us to remember what we're fighting for as well. And I love Anat Shankar Osario. She's a progressive um, messaging uh, strategist and messaging guru. And she, she always says, you know, we can't just be against the bad things that Republicans are doing. We can't just be a party of opposition. We have to have our own resonant vision of the future that's better when we are in power, and um, and I think that that's important at the state level too. As we build this positive conception of states, as we uh, you know build towards a progressive federalism or whatever we want to call it, we have to you know remember what we're fighting for, not just what we're fighting against. And there are some incredible examples of what states are doing that are building towards that, um, that, that positive vision of where the world is better when, when states are controlled by Democrats. So we'd love to also talk about some of the great things that states are doing, including in repro and, and um, environmental policy and so many things. But I uh, think it's, uh, it's important to always um, emphasize the, the good parts as well as the bad parts.
0: I agree. I agree. So let's get to some of those positive things. But let's first talk about what we want people to do, right? Like how we're going to solve this. And, you know, one obvious way of, you know, not to sound productive is is voting, right? And I wanted to talk about this debate that has been going on online, mostly in kind of these political circles, maybe among activists and organizers and people who are kind of like intra-politics, right? And it's about what level of engagement we want to see from voters and I want to talk about it here because I think the messaging that we have in these kind of inner circles of politics, it always reverberates out to, you know, the average voter. I'm thinking of this moment. Um, I think it happened last week. Jennifer Lewis, you know, the Broadway star. Everyone knows Jennifer Lewis. She's amazing. You know, she can like kick her leg in the air up like, I don't know, way above her head. She, she was just recently honored with uh, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is a huge deal. And, you know, there was a crowd of people around her when she was being, you know, awarded the star. And, you know, she used that moment to talk about voting. So in this viral video, she said, the first thing she said to the crowd was, vote. And then she said, don't fuck up. <laughs> right? And And that video went viral. And she's absolutely right. The thing about this online debate that I think that has bothered me I think that it has not been nuanced enough for a couple of reasons. Our voter turnout in this country is, is abysmal. Right. Somehow we've gotten this idea that because of the last few elections, the, the 2008 election and the 2012 election that we had record turnout, that record turnout was only an, an increase of like two to three percent. So if you look at, you know, comparable countries like um, I think Belgium is at the top or some other countries that have really high voter turnout that are in like the, the upper 80s or, you know, 90 percent voter turnout. You know, when compared to the U.S., at our highest, we've had something like 56 percent of turnout. Right. And so arguably our turnout isn't really great. So we do need people to vote. And the second part about this this messaging or this online debate that I think is missing is that for a lot of people, you know, I, I do understand that we need to do more than vote. We need to bring other people to the polls. We need to organize. We need to engage. We need to be involved in our, our primaries to pick candidates who, for instance, support reproductive rights, who support, you know, ending the filibuster. But for most of Americans, most Americans can only vote. Like, that's the only thing that they have in them, because we make voting really, really hard in this country, you know, the gerrymandering and voter suppression, having to stand in line for hours and hours. And so I don't want to diminish participating in democracy with just a vote, because I think that that has just as much value as people who are privileged enough to have time to do other things, right?
2: Absolutely. Um, And the last thing you just said about people who are privileged enough to have time to do other things... Unfortunately, those are a lot of the people who are not doing things. I always hear, you know, why do I need to vote? No one's doing anything for me. And after every election, typically the discourse turns on low income people, people of color, and very often black people saying they did not show up and vote. And that's why we're in the predicament that we're in. But if you look at who's voting to put these bad actors in place, no one ever, you know, holds that mirror up. I think we had some of that be part of the conversation in 2016 when Trump was elected, um, looking at the percentage of, of white women who supported Trump and continue to support Republicans who most recently, uh, you know, took away the right to abortion. And I think we, you know, I don't, I actually don't know how you mobilize privileged people. That's not kind of my background, but <laughs> I think that if um, there was some honesty about the amount of power that those folks have to invest in grassroots organizations, to spend some time making calls, to show up to their elected leaders and, and hold them accountable. Like those are the extra things that have to happen that I don't think we should continue to put on the backs of low income and black and Brown people, because that is actually who's doing all that work. And it takes so much energy and they're just trying to live their lives, lives where they are making, um, you know, minimum wage or just any wage that's not livable, housing insecure, you know, food insecure, dealing with all of kind of the ills of America and then expected to, you know, carry America to this, Bigger, brighter future that no one's providing for them. So, um, you know, people with privilege need to actually be stepping up more. And something I um, I've been reflecting on a lot lately. Just and I've been thinking about this literally since January. And I promise this this all comes together. Um, since uh, you know, in January we commemorate MLK's birthday with a day of service, and I think that voting for people who have the means to do more the same as like a day of service for the people who have means to do more is is them saying okay well i've done what i need to do when there are ways that we can actually live our lives that actually improve outcomes for others so i'm thinking about a lot of the Liberals who have a lot of money and you know don't like a lot of the social policy they're seeing now, but are really happy with their tax cuts. You can't only have tax cuts. You know those tax cuts come with people who also want to take away a lot of your rights. And so being okay with you know higher taxes, supporting candidates who are going to seek out a more just society that may take a little bit from you, but make sure everyone else is in a better place. Um, so I, I just I think that's really important. But to to voting and, and not diminishing it. But understanding that it is really hard, we I mean we have to make it easier, and I know that that part's not easy. i I gotta be honest, when I first started working in politics i I, I just thought that voting and policy was all you needed to improve people's lives and I, I still think that those are the things that really make the difference, but so many barriers have been put in place. That it's not as simple, as you said, as showing up. And it's not as simple as just passing a piece of good policy. I mean, we're seeing that with the filibuster. And it's like, why does this thing even exist? But I think we have to hold on to this thing, you know, called America that we're trying to get to its best place. That is, at this point, the only thing that keeps me going, knowing that, like, everyone deserves to have better And, you know, I grew up poor, and I am really fortunate and grateful to be in the position that I am in now, but it didn't come without people sacrificing a lot for me to get here. And that's just what I hold on to, like kind of my fellow person, I guess the term is really my fellow man, but you know, people in general, um, and understanding that they deserve better and, and keeping in the fight that way. But I feel like I'm one of those privileged people who should be doing that. And I just want to take the burden off of people who have continuously been asked to to keep showing up and doing the hard work and I want to make voting easier for them but I think I want to shift more of my focus on the people who can do more and demand of them that they do do more.
0: Yeah, this is the nuance that's missing from this debate I think because you're absolutely right. There is this kind of twofold burden, right? There are people who are burdened, you know, marginalized people who are burdened with the worst of voter suppression. And like I said, you know, they really can only give you know, the few hours they have off of work to stand in line to vote, like that's all they have to do. But then there's this other burden that the falls on the shoulders of these black and brown leaders and these marginalized organizers who are out there trying to improve things for this other sector of voters. And you're right, there's this other middle of privileged people who have more to give and who aren't giving more. And I presume that that is the message. And that is the group that we want to help engage more, I think.
2: Yes. And, you know, I, it was what you said that even prompted that I like had something else completely planned to say, but that is, you know, it's often people with privilege saying, well, if you would just vote, this would be easier. And, you know, I think a completely fine response back to that would be, well, if you weren't sustaining these these structures that help you out at my expense, then voting wouldn't be so hard, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Go on, Gabby. Go
1: on. No, no. I love that. I I think that's uh, it's completely a million percent true. And so, a few things. I mean, one is yes, people who can do more should, you know, that I think that you know, when I started Sister District, I was not an organizer by training, and you know, I think that a lot of my friends who who still are not in, you know, not in politics, not in organizing have maybe this impression that it's it's hard to volunteer and it's it takes a lot of time and you know it's time intensive and it's it's uh boring or what i don't know you know there's that impression and i think that you know none of that is true and um and what i like to tell folks who volunteer with sister district and just in general is like just make a little time, right? It's not an all or nothing thing. You don't, you don't have to be an activist. It's really, you know, an hour here or there, right? Or 45 minutes, if you've got it, to to join a national phone bank that we're running for our state ledge candidates. Um, We run lots of phone banks every week. They're, they're easy to come out. You know, we do, we do some really lightweight training at the top. It's on Zoom. It's, you know, sometimes we get fun folks like David Cross to come and kick us off or the candidate or whatever. Um, And it doesn't, have to to be a a burden on your time right so that's the that's one thing I mean I think the other thing is money and I think Shaniqua you know made such a, a a great point earlier about how far your you know your dollar goes at the state ledge level and so you know and I think we talked a little bit about the need to diversify the the money away from federal races downward the other piece is I think connected to this is and and for folks who have a little bit of time or money, is that we need to be supporting the year-round grassroots organizers that are on the ground in our states everywhere, right? I mean, I'm so delighted that uh, New new Georgia Project has, has sort of come onto people's radars in Georgia. There are new Georgia projects in all of our states right? Not, not exactly, right? But there are organizers um, that are doing that hard year-round work often led by people of color who are really set, you know, whose organizing model centers the voices of people who are most impacted by these state policies. And they need money. They need visibility, right? And um, our state at Sister District, we have a program called State Bridges where we hold virtual fundraisers and raise visibility in small dollars for these incredible year-round power building organizations that are on the ground because we know that the electoral wins that we're all so eager, eager to, to to make are are made possible in no small part because of the year-round organizing work that's happening in our states and they need money. And so even if you're in California, you can you know send Send five or ten dollars to Lucha in Arizona, right? Or We the People in Michigan. They're um, they're in the best place to to be able to to make those conversations. And and one thing that always stays with me in that regard is Art Reyes, who's the um, executive director at We the People in Michigan. We were talking about misinformation and what to do about it and all this stuff, and he was like, "You know what? The antidote for misinformation is not better information. It's relationships." So right. And, you know, it's these these organizers that are doing this year round work, connecting the dots for people on the ground, for voters on the ground about why they should vote and why voting will result in you know, a better life for them on the issues that they care about that, um, that we really need to, to be focused on at the state level. So that's, that's what I wanted to say there. One other piece is just, you know, around this conversation about voting and like, is it enough to vote or just go, just go vote. I, I have a lot of time for, you know, the, <laughs> the frustration that, that a lot of people feel um, when they're just told to go vote, just vote just vote, you know, With voter suppression and all the rest. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's a little glib to just, you know, say that uh, we need to vote more. But one thing I would say is that, because we focus on state ledge level, is that we've done a lot of research looking, going back to 2012, um, at this point, and what we find is consistently in election after election, even years, odd years, whatever it is, Democrats at the bottom of the ballot at the state ledge level always get fewer votes than whoever we're running at the top of the ticket, whether that's president or, or governor or whatever it is. And the opposite is usually true on the Republican side, where Republican state ledge candidates often get more votes than the the Republican at the top of the ticket. I know that sounds wild. Just as one example, last year in Virginia, um, there were 60,000 more votes for Terry McAuliffe, who was the Democratic nominee for, for governor, than there were for Democratic state ledge candidates. 60,000 more people voted for Terry than voted for state ledge Democrats. On the other side, there were 5,000 more votes for Republican state ledge candidates than the winning Republican gubernatorial candidate. Glenn Youngkin so and you know just to put that in perspective like we lost the house in Virginia by 750 so if just 750 of the people who had voted of the 60,000 people who voted for Terry had voted all the way down the ballot we would have held on to the house in, in in Virginia and we see that year after year. And so I think that you know one way to one nuanced approach to like this you know issue of like just go vote like no of course that's not enough and it's glib and it's um it, it makes invisible the barriers to voting that so many people and communities face but also but also Democrats need to vote all the way down the ballot. It's not enough to just vote for president. It's not enough to just go out and vote for your federal Senate candidate. You have to vote all the way down the ballot. And so that's one place where I think that we can um, kind of bridge the gap between those two, two pieces um, and really encourage our voters to, to not roll off the ballot and to,
0: to vote all the way down the ballot. There's a term for that, isn't it? The um, Voter or ballot drop off? Yeah. Roll off or drop off. Roll off. OK. And I, I think that's something that we need to make a household term. So when a person gets their ballot here in Washington say you know, they mail the ballots to you. But, you know, when a person sees the ballot to have that word kind of like circulating in their head that like, OK, I need to go all the way down the ballot. And, you know, I hope that's a big part of the messaging. And and one last thing I'll say on, on this whole conversation around like voter engagement and I'm glad you both have said what you've said. And Shaniko, I think you kind of hinted at this that it's, you know, both classist and, and racist, I think, to frame the issues we have around voting and the lack of voting and, you know, turnout as an issue of voter apathy, because it's not voter apathy, right? Voting in this country is deliberately made harder it's made harder for people to participate in democracy. So I just want to make that clear that, you know, I do understand that we have a lot of work to do in terms of voter turnout, but it's not the fault of the voter themselves. It's not the constituency's fault. So, you know, what what should people do? How can we turn this around? What do you hope people will gain from your state power series? What states and races should we be focused on?
2: Yeah, people should come to our state power series. The next one is August 30th. And we will be focused on um, talking about election subversion. Um, We just finished a series of hearings that um, the select committee has been doing, just trying to figure out what's going on with what happened on January 6th. as we're having these conversations, we're really trying to focus on how state level races, state level positions really factor into a lot of the big things we're seeing. A lot of things that I think we all attribute, not all, but a lot of us attribute to you know the federal government and thinking that's the only place where um, good and bad things happen. But as we've said so many times before... A lot of this stuff starts in the states, it's initiated by the states, and then the federal government is just kind of seen in the aftermath of it. So definitely that. Um, But then I would also encourage folks to um, join Vote Save America's Midterm Madness program. You can get to it at votesaveamerica.com slash midterms. And that is a program that we've put together to help people get engaged up and down the ballot. And so that includes state legislative races. Honestly, as we've um, gone from 2018 to now, we've started to shift where most of our, um, you know, or expand and and put more emphasis on what's happening at the state level. Between state legislatures, um, attorney generals, secretaries of state, so many people in uh, the orbit of state government have an outsized impact on, on a lot of things, but especially our democracy and our ability to access the ballot and whether or not voting is difficult or not directly stems from the laws that are coming out of our state legislatures. And so it's really important for us to focus on that, because if you have a strong democracy, then you're able to ha- make your voice heard on all those other issues we care about, like abortion and climate. But the minute um, your ability to participate in our democracy is diminished, all those other issues start to um, start to crumble as well and just kind of become uh, subject to to minority rules. So uh, vote dot america.com slash midterms you can join whatever region you're in i'm team south i'm from north carolina and we would appreciate folks joining
0: and and, and gabby i know the sister district has a lot of events going on too and you're focusing on several key states i think is it was seven states that you're focusing on
1: yeah, exactly. So um, yes, please join us as well. Um, Vote Save is doing amazing work and um, we're, we're so glad to be working in partnership in different ways. Um, if folks go to sisterdistrict.com um, and sign up, you will be routed to your closest sister district team. We have about 150 active teams across the country. And, um, and each year we sister each of our teams to a couple of state-led races for field and fundraising support over the entire cycle. So I live here in Berkeley, California, and um, this year my local team is supporting a couple of candidates in Arizona but I just moved from Washington DC where our local sister district team is supporting candidates in Pennsylvania. Um, so it's, uh, we run weekly phone banks. Um, our teams hold fun fundraisers. We're getting back in person where we can, um, as well as by zoom. Uh, and it's, you know, there are lightweight ways to volunteer a little bit of time and to donate a little bit of money and it goes a really, really long way at the state level. So yeah, we're focused on seven States and, uh, and you can Find out about our strategy and which states we're focused on on our website. I know we're running out of time, um, but we would love to invite folks to to join us and um, fit in a little bit of time for state ledge advocacy and elections into the, you know, the, the other work that you're all doing. Um, you don't have to abandon the Senate, cam- this federal Senate campaign you're excited about. Um, just make a little time for, for state ledge; It'll go a long way.
0: Yeah, definitely. It will definitely go a long way. Well, I will put links to those events in the show notes. And just thank you so much, um, Gabby and Shaniqua, for doing all of the work that you've done. Thank you for joining me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It was really kind of energizing to me. So thank you so much. Thank you for having
2: us. Thank you.